SEC fans, welcome to the Saturday Down South podcast. Coming to you from the iHeartMedia studio, WDAE in Tampa, Florida, 620 AM and 95.3 FM. My name is John Christ, senior writer for Saturday Down South, and his name is Connor O'Gara, national columnist for Saturday Down South. You can follow me on Twitter at SaturdayJC and follow him at CJ O'Gara. Connor, thankfully, you and I are still gainfully employed, and that's a lot more than at least one coach in the SEC can say right about now. I've been saying it all week, but yes, I am doing better than Jim McElwain. Thank you for asking. The buyout, not quite as hefty, but doing better in terms of the employment stuff, I tend to agree with you. If you're listening to this podcast, then you know the South loves football. You know what the South also loves? Crystal Burgers. That's right. Crystal, home of the classic Crystal Burger, is a Saturday Down South sponsor this year. They are ready to hook you up for your tailgate. First, the classic Crystal, the one you grew up with, the one you loved in college way after midnight. It's still only 79 cents. All day, every day, as many as you want, 79 cents a pop. Finally, Crystal is taking care of the Saturday Down South readers this fall. Text SDS, that's the letters SDS, to 37793. Right now, 37793. And you're going to get two free crystals and a drink. Free crystals, 79-cent crystals. I guarantee if you show up to your tailgate with a steamer pack of crystals, you're going to be treated like the hero that you are. Stop by your local Crystal today. All right, Connor, in terms of Florida, rumor became reality very, very quickly in Gainesville. Jim McElwain is out, and he's probably just the first domino that's going to fall in this conference. It was amazing to see that this all happened so quickly. We talk about this in the media almost like it's just kind of gossip, and it gives us something to something to talk about during the week when we see comments like this that a coach has made, but the the accusations that came out, whenever you go ahead and, and throw out something like death threats onto the table, it gets serious in a hurry. This is, That's a serious thing to, to throw out there, and I think people uh, people take that as more than just, just gossip when we talk about the consequences of something like that. And in such a quick time frame fitting that it would happen this way in today's day and age of college football, we saw McElwain go from a guy who was losing games to a guy who had fallen out of favor completely with his administration. And, you know, it wasn't necessarily just that. It was the incident was just the final straw. And this was something that caught some people by surprise. But when you look back and you add up the series of events, it's really not that surprising in the grand scheme of things. And you can sit here and talk about the SEC East titles and, how he came into the season 16-3 and in SEC play. But the reality is when you upset administration the way that he did and the way that he did so in such a public fashion, it's not a good look, and they did what they thought had to be done. Yeah, I don't think I'm surprised that this happened. I think I'm surprised at just how quickly it happened. I mean, this went from zero to 100 in a hurry. And you're right, we've heard these rumors for a while now. And I did a show locally here in Tampa Tuesday before coming in this in the uh, podcast studio. And of course, I was asked about this question. 
And my reaction was this was the straw that broke the camel's back. This wasn't a one-time offender that they decided that they needed to get rid of this guy. And here's an opportunity to wiggle out maybe of some of some buyout money. But Coach Mack has done a lot of things quite bizarrely, as a matter of fact, during his two-plus year tenure in Gainesville. And it's not just on the field. It's off the field. It's just a lot of things. He was never truly embraced by Gator Nation. He never truly embraced Gator Nation. He seemed to rub some boosters the wrong way. Fans were never really on his side. He didn't seem to care what the fans think. And this was not the first time that he made the administration look bad. Remember, I think it was a bold victory over Iowa a couple of years ago where he sort of unprompted starts saying that he's questioning the school's commitment to winning because the facilities maybe aren't up to par with an Alabama or an Arkansas or some of the fantastic ones we see in the conference. And you can't do that. You can't do that publicly. It's perfectly fine to walk into the AD's office and say, you know what? My indoor practice facility is nice, but what would make it even better is A, B, and C. We'll win more games. We'll get better recruits. That's fine. But if your way of doing that is to do it publicly in the media, you make people look bad. You make the deep-pocketed people very uncomfortable. And this was another situation with the death threat stuff. It didn't make a lot of sense to me. On the one hand, he's talking about how serious this is, his family's in jeopardy, his players are being threatened, but then you get asked about it and to provide details and you don't bother. You get called into the AD's office, the president's office, they ask for details and you don't bother. You know, this is this is a college situation. This is a safety situation. And this is a public school that has to keep the welfare of its students at the top of its priority list. But if this was so serious... Why are you so flippant about giving us details about it? So, again, this was a straw that broke the camel's back. They were looking for a reason to move on with this guy. I think pretty early on, despite the somewhat success on the field, they realized that this was sort of an oil and water situation. McWayne and Florida were never a great fit, and it started to crumble on the field, and the off-field relationship was never very good. The problem with McWayne also is that we referenced this maybe not enough when it comes to coaching hires, is the personality. Jim McElwain was not willing to play the game. A lot of people said that that was sort of Charlie Strong's downfall at Texas and that he didn't know how to necessarily smooth boosters and that he didn't know the right things to say at the right time. And the more and more we saw McElwain get this pressure when things weren't going well on the field, we saw those personality traits come out. And ultimately, it's very hard to succeed long-term at a big-time program, but at the very least, you've got to be willing to play the game. People can talk about Nick Saban all, all we want. We, we, can, we can say how stubborn he is and how he won't admit to this and we won't admit to that, but Nick Saban knows how to play the game, and he knows who signs his checks. He knows what to say, when to say it, and he has mastered the art of having everybody in his corner and understanding that his vision is the right vision. Jim McElwain never got even close to that. And the, the Iowa comments were, were shocking in that it came after a, a nice victory, and all he had to do was put a smile on and say, I'm really happy with the way that we play. That was this, this past year that, that all this happened. You're coming off two straight division titles. you got some nice momentum going into the offseason. All you got to do is say, you know, I'm, I'm really happy with, with what, the way that we were able to finish the season off. Uh, I hope that we're able to do some things next year that's going to be even better than this because that's what Florida fans expected. Now, when you, th- when you start throwing administration under the bus, it's, it's just a matter of time. He, as you said, he gave them that excuse to say, 
you know what, you're not the guy, we're going to go in a different direction. You can have buyer's remorse and, and all those things after you hire a guy, but when things like this continue to add up, it's going to make their trigger that much quicker. And that's, that's just what we saw, that, that, that this played out in the fashion that it did. Now Florida's left saying, all right, where do we go? Who's our next guy? Who's going to be the one that's going to be around like a, a Spurrier, like a Meyer? They've had too many of these failures with coaches who ultimately don't know how to, how to survive at a big-time program. Who's going to be the guy that's going to get it done and that's going to be um, sort of going to end this, this run of just disastrous endings for these head coaches? Yeah, McElwain came from Colorado State, previously the offensive coordinator at Alabama for four seasons under Nick Saban. But when you're at Colorado State, you know, a program like that that isn't on TV very much and doesn't have a huge alumni or fan base, doesn't have 90,000-plus in the stadium on Saturdays, you know what? If you find a way to win eight or nine games and upset Colorado every three or four years, they love that stuff. That's all you have to do. You don't have to play the games that you're referencing. But at a program like Florida, which is a top 10 program in America, no question about it, with the history and the facilities and the ability to win and the amount of money to spend and the stadium and how passionately that fan base wants to be great, you have to play those games. You have to know who writes the checks. You have to know who the million-dollar donors are. You have to shake the right hands. You have to kiss the right babies. You have to say the right things on your radio show. You have to go to all the alumni luncheons and things like that. You have to do those things. You can't just say, out of hell with it, I'm going to focus on uh, the, the bowl game that's coming up. Or, you know what, I need to watch more tape on Missouri. You can't operate that way. And you're right about Nick Saban. We criticize him for the way he treats the media sometimes and how he's maybe he's a little light on discipline and players get away with things. But when it comes to putting on the suit and tie and getting in front of that microphone with the right people and knowing how to pay respect to the AD and the president and the school as a whole, the coaching staff that's working for him, the teachers at the university, he's fantastic at that stuff. He is the face of that school, and he wears it well. McElwain never did that. I wrote it the other day. It just seemed like the job was too big for him. And another thing that I found bizarre, despite being part of this Nick Saban coaching tree, he didn't really have any of Nick Saban's traits, none whatsoever. And just look to Athens. Kirby Smart, as I've said before, is building Tuscaloosa East. He's taking the Saban blueprint, implementing it with the red and black to incredible success in year two. McElwain didn't do any of that. He had a very loosey-goosey approach. He let his players run their mouths. He let them kind of talk out of school and do things off the field that got him in trouble here and there. His personality was different. The way he approached practice was different. His game day experience was different. He didn't feel like a Saban guy at all. And I thought that's maybe what Florida thought it was getting when it made the hire. Yeah, and I would agree with you up until maybe a few days ago that McElwain was simply a guy who didn't know how to handle a big program, and that's all it was. But I think it's something actually even deeper than that. I think he just doesn't handle losing very well. And I think he's always been this guy who, um, you know, there was a, a, an article that came out uh, in the Colorado and uh, Kelly Lyell, I'm, if I'm pronouncing her name wrong, I apologize. But her article was that few saw the other side of Jim McElwain at Colorado State. And he complained about facilities there, and he threw administration under the bus there, and he was temperamental, and he threw people under the bus that he should not have been throwing under the bus. He treated people, subordinates, 
like they like their world should revolve around him. And there were a lot of people who didn't necessarily think that he was this great guy who was built to go on to this big time program and be able to handle the peaks and valleys. So there were some cracks in the foundation that maybe we didn't realize when he was hired. A lot of people were so high on him when he was when he came into Florida because he was that coach on the rise. He had proven that he could win as a head coach albeit in the Mountain West, he was a Saban disciple. We expected him to do these big-time things with the Florida offense that made so much sense. And we're all guilty of sort of buying into, you know, just the, the resume. But when you kind of get into who he actually is as a person, that told us what we needed to know about his ability to survive in this job. And I think we're going to do the same thing over and over with these hires at big-time programs. We're going to look at their resume more than we're going to look at anything else because ultimately we don't know who these people are behind closed doors. We know how they are when they address the media and how they are in these situations on the field. But there are, a whole, there are so many other elements to these coaches that we really don't know. And McElwain is just a good example of, well, when you kind of peel the curtain back, you see a little bit of an uglier picture, and that's ultimately – what we saw out of him, and it's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting to see if he's going to get another Power Five job because I think there is going to be a market for him. Um, I don't think his days as a head coach are completely done. I don't think he's going to go back to Montana and just chill, um, a la Phil Jackson or something like that. But you know, I think that uh, it's it's going to be tough for him to sell himself as an offensive guy, as a guy who can handle losing. Um, and I think. Whoever decides to hire him is going to need to be aware of all of these things and all of these these personality traits that come with it. Yeah, he's an odd duck, just a strange dude. I mean, I've been around him in a lot of press conference situations or even just socially, whether it was uh, prior to kickoff at the national championship game this past year in Tampa, we had an opportunity to rub elbows a little bit. He's, he's just sort of a weird guy. I don't have a better way to describe it. You ask him a serious question, and he gives you a goofy response. You ask him a goofy question, and he gives you like this teary-eyed, serious response. So, yeah, again, just sort of a square peg in a round hole in Gainesville. It didn't work out, but it's time to stop looking back. We need to look ahead. As I talked about, this is a top 10 job in America. This is Florida. This should be one of the premier destinations for any coach who wants to win a national championship. A lot of names are being thrown out there. There really isn't a no-brainer hire. There's nobody out there who you say, this is the perfect fit. This makes sense. The timing is right. We hear Dan Mullen. We hear Willie Taggart. We hear Charlie Strong. Lots of other names. I know a lot of it's just conjecture at this point, but where do you see these dominoes potentially falling and who might take this job in a couple of weeks? I think there's a strong possibility that Willie Taggart takes this job. And I know that sounds surprising because he's in his first year at Oregon, and there are a lot of people who think that Oregon is a premier job and maybe a better job than it actually is. But in my opinion, I think that they make the strongest push to get him back to Florida. I think if he had come out last year and if this job had been, avail- been available, he would have been that no-brainer hire. The job that he did at South Florida was impressive. A lot of the success that the Bulls have had this year have been because of the foundation that he put in place there. And I think he is the guy that they are going to target most. His buyout is actually pretty favorable, all things considered. I want to say it's in the range of about $3 million, which for, for a program like Florida that wants to get this higher right, needs to get this higher right, I think that's something that they'd be more than willing to pay. I don't know why his contract worked out the way that it did. I saw that article on Football Scoop. Um, but that would 
to me, that would be, make the most sense. You're going to pay a lot of money to talk to a guy like Matt Campbell. You're going to pay a lot of money to talk to Dan Mullen if that's even going to be in the cards. We don't know what his relationship is like with Florida. Um, you know, that, that's a little bit up in the air. But I, to me, I think Willie Taggart is the guy who gets targeted the most, and I think he ultimately rises to the top of the list. If he is willing to walk away from Oregon after a year, um, I think that he ultimately gets his job. You know, I was asked the same question earlier today in Tampa doing my radio appearance, and that was the first name that I said, too. Now, I know he has said recently that he's not interested and he's tied to Oregon and that's where he's going to be, but you know what? That's the only way to answer the question. You certainly can't say, sure, I'm interested. By the way, who do we play this week? It, it doesn't work that way. So I think Willie Taggart makes a lot of sense because of the Florida ties, because what he did in Tampa at USF. You're right. Charlie Strong's team, which has had a fantastic run so far in 2017, that's all thanks to Willie Taggart and what he put in place. But I'm not sure that's a perfect fit. A year ago, maybe it would have been. You know, Dan Mullen, I'm, I'm here to squash that right now. I don't think that makes a lot of sense. Yes, he has ties to the program four years as an OC under Urban Meyer, two national championships, but he seems very, very comfortable in Starkville. He already makes close to $5 million a year. He's borderline untouchable there. If you win nine games, he's a god. If you win six games, oh well, we're Mississippi State. So I don't know why he would leave such a low-pressure situation for a crazy pressure cooker in Gainesville. Just ask Coach Mack about that. I don't think Charlie Strong makes any sense either. He's another guy with Gainesville ties. He's been the defensive coordinator there. We know he likes to recruit the Sunshine State. That's why he's at USF, USF right now. But, you know, that failure at Texas is still very, very fresh in our minds. That was a big, big-time job in America, and it did not work for him. What would be different about Florida except maybe a little more familiarity? So I don't think that's going to work. And you have a fresh AD who probably wants to make a fresh hire, not try to queue up the good old days with Coach Spurrier or Coach Mullen. I think Scott Frost is the guy. I would go all in on Scott Frost. What he's done at UCF so quickly is incredible. Two years ago, this was maybe the worst program in all of college football. Didn't win a game. And he has them threatening a New Year's Six Bowl, scoring points all over the place. This is the fresh, young offensive mind that could reinvigorate Florida's offense, maybe have that job for a decade or two. It seems like a perfect fit. I know the ties to Nebraska are out there. That job is there. Is the call to the alma mater going to be too much to dismiss? But you can't tell me Scott Frost is looking himself in the mirror every morning. And if he asks himself the question, where can I win bigger and faster, Nebraska or Florida? I don't care how much Cornhusker Red he has in his closet. The answer is Florida. You know you know me. I am the biggest Scott Frost uh, supporter. You carry a lot of his water. That is correct. Yeah, I've been driving the Scott Frost bandwagon for a long time now. I've been driving the bandwagon for three years on him since he was the offensive coordinator for Marcus Mariota's Heisman campaign. People forget that, um, that – you know, I, I actually, you know, six weeks ago, here's the shameless plug part of the of the podcast. But it's for a story that I did like six or seven weeks ago, not something that I did too recently. So we'll count it. Um, I, I said that Scott Frost needs to be as coveted as Tom Herman was. I think if you compare their resumes side by side, and even go back to that 2014-15 national championship game when Scott Frost is on one sideline, Tom Herman is on the other, and Tom Herman's offense ultimately won. Tom Herman gets the job at Houston, of course, and then you know goes on to get the job at Texas. 
Scott Frost had to wait another year to get his opportunity. He also went to an AAC program. And what did he do at that AAC program? It was even more impressive than what Tom, Her- than what Tom Herman did at Tech. The- Tom Herman did at Houston. Wow, I can't speak today. Um, this, Scott Frost gets me worked up because I think there are so many people who are questioning whether or not he can be the guy at a big-time program, and if they are, they shouldn't be. When I suggested that seven weeks ago, I was surprised at how many people came out and said, absolutely, this guy needs to be uh, on the front line for any SEC opening, Tennessee, Florida, I don't care. He's going to get a big-time job. He's going to succeed. He's young. He's been on both sides of the ball as a coach. He is the guy, in my opinion. He is the up-and-coming coach that should be targeted. That should be targeted. I know Matt Campbell is going to get a lot of love for what he's been doing at Iowa State. With all due respect, incredible, incredible stuff. But Scott Frost is the guy. He needs to be at the top of everyone's list. I, I would support, absolutely support, if Florida wanted to make him a big-time offer. I agree with you 100%. Um, Taggart, to me, makes a tiny bit more sense just because of those Nebraska connections. I think Nebraska is going to come out and – be willing to do whatever it can to bring Scott Frost back to Lincoln. So that's that's ultimately why I would give uh, that idea some pause. Yeah, you're probably right, but if I'm making the decision for Florida, and needless to say, I'm not, yeah, I'm with you. I think Frost is the guy. Every now and then you have one of those young up-and-comers who just has that certain it factor, and he seems to have it. I mean, we've seen him throw the helmet on and run the scout team. He just has that youthful exuberance and energy offensively what he's doing is brilliant he's done it with a bunch of scabs and walk-ons and two-star kids if you give him the power of what Florida could potentially be I think it could be fantastic I really think that would be a nice fit I don't know if it would happen but if you're talking about potential SEC openings where would you rather be if you had your pick as a Scott Frost you want to go to Tennessee you want to go to Arkansas do you want to go to Ole Miss Florida's a better job than all of them, and it's a lot closer move from where he is now at UCF, right up the road from Orlando. I think that would be the way to go. I'd love to see it happen. I don't know if it will, but again, as we bring it back to earlier in the conversation, there doesn't seem to be a no-brainer hire for Florida, which is why watching this is going to be a lot of fun. And I think that Frost, if, if Florida were to bring him on board, I think that would be a home run from an alumni standpoint. I think that they would get a lot of people back uh, in their corner by doing that. I think it would be really well-received publicly. Um, Just the job that he's been able to do and the Orlando market has fallen in love with this guy. I mean, I live in Orlando and I see the UCF support and they they want, they're doing whatever they can to try and keep him at UCF. It's not going to happen, but um, that's how well-respected he is in, in in a place like this that doesn't necessarily uh value college football the same way that a place like Gainesville does and I don't say that to, to slight Orlando because there is a market but it's just not the opportunity that a place like Florida or Tennessee or Nebraska would be not even close but knowing Gator Nation the way I do they'd rather rehire Steve Spurrier uh the Saturday Down South podcast is brought to you by Ticket City college football is here and there are some magnificent matchups this week in the SEC Auburn, Texas A&M, Florida, Missouri, South Carolina, Georgia, Ole Miss, Kentucky, and the headliner, LSU, Alabama. Now is the time to get your tickets. We've been working with Ticket City for a long time. They are the experts in the business, having served over a million and a half customers. They've been the place to go for almost 30 years now. Best of all, Ticket City is offering $20 off for Saturday Down South readers. All you need to do is go to TicketCity.com 
Enter the discount code SDS20 at checkout, and you're going to get 20 bucks off the game of your choice. That's TicketCity.com, discount code SDS20. Get off the couch, go to the game, visit Ticket City today. All right, Connor, let's keep it on the hot seat conversation. And you know what? You can make an argument that if things fall the right way, maybe six or seven coaches could be on the outs in the SEC. Maybe six or seven openings. That's a stunning amount. We had zero turnover last year, if you don't really include the LSU situation, going from Coach Miles to Coach Orgeron. But you know what? There are a lot of guys on hot seats. There are a lot of moves that could be made. Let's try to go through a bunch of names relatively quickly. The top of everybody's list in America, of course, Butch Jones at Tennessee. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Why hasn't it happened yet? Question number one. Question number two, who's going to take that job? Question number one, I have no idea. I thought it was going to happen after they lost at Kentucky. I predicted that probably a month ago, that this was going to be the time. Hasn't happened. It's not going to happen if it hasn't happened by now. Um, I think that he, unless he loses the homecoming game this weekend, I, I think we're looking at a situation where they're going to keep him the rest of the year. Um, and I do think it's only a matter of time. I think 0-5 in SEC play kind of speaks for itself. Um, as for who gets this job, I mean, I think they're going to have a very similar list to as, as Florida. I think they're going to go after... Maybe a, a Jeff Brom, potentially a Scott Frost. We've heard, you know, groomers galore. Uh, I know he's the betting favorite right now. I ultimately, you know, I think we agree on this. That I, I mean, I don't think John Gruden's leaving his ESPN job unless he's forced out, in which case that would be a different scenario. But, you know, the guy still hasn't coached in nine years. And, uh, you know, I know the Tennessee connections and all that stuff. But for me, I think that they're going to be able to go after potentially a Mike Gundy a uh, guy that hasn't necessarily been all in with Oklahoma State's athletic department. Uh, there are you know, rumblings about potential, a potential rift there and whether or not he'd be willing to move. I, I don't know who gets that Tennessee job, though. I, think, I, I don't think that they have this, um, this set-in-stone idea of what kind of candidate they want. I think they want to be able to kind of take all things into consideration, group of five, NFL. Um, I've heard even like a Jim Bob Cooter thrown around there. Their, their candidate list, to me, is going to be long, and it's going to be really interesting. Um, but, yeah, I, I really don't know. That, that to me, that, that kind of stumps me at this point. I, I understand the list of candidates, but as far as who makes the most sense, just like Florida, I don't necessarily think there's that obvious home run hire. What say you? John Gruden is not going to happen. This is how I've described the John Gruden situation. He's like the comfortably, happily married guy who still goes out to the bar every now and then. And he likes to talk to a single lady just to kind of see if he still has it. He loves the attention. He loves it. He's in the ESPN booth. He's got the lay of the land there. He's got his facility up in the Orlando area where he does his QB camp and all the fun things he does on TV. He makes a reported $6.5 million a year for not working particularly hard and never having an opportunity to lose a game. He's got such a cushy life. He's still only 54 years old, but he's been out of the coaching game for nine years now. I think he just loves the attention, loves the adulation. When there's an NFL opening, you always hear his name. When Notre Dame comes open, you always hear his name. I don't see it's going to happen. I don't think it happens. But one thing Tennessee fans need to understand, I keep saying this and they're not going to like it. I just don't know how attractive this job is right now. Number one, 
Florida is a better job. No matter how you look at it, Florida is a better job to have and an easier path to win a national championship than Tennessee is. Number two, Georgia is absolutely rolling right now with Kirby Smart. So even if you do make a good hire at Tennessee, you're probably third best in your own division if you're lucky. If you're lucky and you get the right guy. But in terms of who it's going to be, Dan Mullen, no. I make the same argument uh, that I do for him at Florida. He's so comfortable in Starkville and bulletproof. Why would he make a move like that just to ratchet up the pressure? Yeah, you hear the NFL stuff here and there. But again, what Tennessee fans need to remember, when they made the Derek Dooley hire, that was about their third choice. When they made the Butch Jones hire, he was about their third choice. They have shot for the stars before. They have come up empty. They tried to woo Dan, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Jay, John Gruden. Sorry, too many Grudens in that family. They tried to woo him before, and it didn't happen. They tried to woo Charlie Strong, and it didn't happen. They've gone after Kyle Whittingham. It didn't happen. Lots of guys have said no to this job. Will Muschamp said no to Tennessee once upon a time. So just because you want him doesn't mean you're going to get him. I think they're going to get another you know, group of five type guy who's done okay and is ready for another step. Do you want to give P.J. Fleck the job after one year at Minnesota? I don't know, but I think those are the types of candidates that Tennessee is going to be looking at. I think that would disappoint a lot of Tennessee fans, which I, I, I'm, I agree with you. I'm thinking that they're, they're not going to end up with as splashy of a hire as, as some are making this out to be. Um, but that's the thing that we got to consider with all these hires. Splashy doesn't really mean a whole lot um, a year after the hire. It really doesn't. Lovey Smith was a splashy hire at Illinois, <laughs> yeah. and they're not even coming close to, to filling that stadium on a given Saturday against a top-five team. So splashy hires, yeah, they draw headlines. They bring some positive attention to your program um, when usually you're sitting there watching other teams play in bowl games. But splashy hires in the long run ultimately aren't going to win win you ball games and John Gruden is a splashy hire but would be a splashy hire at any place of course but and he can be the man and do all these things but there's no guarantee of, of success rate so uh, we've, we've spent too much time talking about John Gruden probably already I'll, I'll transition to, to something else let's let's move on from the Butch Jones thing too because I think that's already I mean I, I'd be stunned if that didn't happen in the within the next month here I think that happens about six hours after the final game of the regular season. That's just its the only thing that makes sense. Um, I don't know if we're going to have a tarmac situation like Lane Kiffin did once upon a time at USC. But, yeah, j- just topple this thing over already. It is past time. But realistically, look at the SEC. Brett Bielema could be gone and probably is. Kevin Sumlin could be gone if he has another Sumlin-esque November. Gus Malzahn could be gone. They're very anxious at Auburn right now on the Plains because they still have Georgia and Alabama on the schedule. If the Tigers don't do well in either one of those, maybe you make a change. Barry Odom, how how safe is he at Missouri? That program has gone absolutely nowhere and shown no progress since he's been there in his second season. Matt Luke, interim coach at Ole Miss. I mean, do the Rebels want to try to make a big hire? Probably not this very second with the vultures of the NCAA still swirling up above in Oxford. But has Matt Luke done anything to prove that you can take the interim label off of his business card? Probably not. That's four or five other jobs potentially out there. Of those names, who do you think is the most secure and who is the most insecure and needs to freshen up that resume? Well, I think... In terms of security, and I, I don't necessarily say security like it's something that's been earned. I think it, 
is more about the circumstances surrounding it. I think Barry Odom stays another year at Missouri. And I know that's unpopular given the way that they started off the year, but they've actually played somewhat okay football the last month after that disastrous showing against Purdue. And I know they've gotten killed against some some SEC powers, but even Mississippi State's been killed against SEC powers. And if you're Missouri, you're sitting there and you're realizing that all of these other better SEC jobs are going to come open, who are you going to go out and get? Who, who's your, your guy that's going to come in? You probably want a young, fiery guy who's got some ties to the area and you know thinks that uh, maybe is a, a group of five upcoming coach. But Barry Odom is a guy with Missouri connections, and he's 40, and you know, he's the guy that you went all in with two years ago. So I don't think Missouri is at a place where it's going to fire a coach after two years. I don't think it's been quite the disaster that maybe we were predicting after they got off to the start that they did in September. So I think technically he might have the most security just because he doesn't have the track record that other coaches do per se. But that's not to say that he's, he's done the best job of those coaches. You know what? I'm not so sure about that. Again, I don't have a whole lot of insider knowledge in Columbia right now, but just, I mean, this is year two for the program, not year one. Is it still early? Yes, it is. But I just don't see any progress whatsoever. I see an offense with Josh Heupel that can score a ton of points against awful competition. And I see a defense that can stop absolutely nobody when they get to a legitimate, uh, a legitimate opponent. I mean, this year you got a blowout of, was it with Southwest Missouri State? And then the last two weeks, you've blown out Idaho and UConn. Those are the three wins. In between, you get drubbed by South Carolina. You get drubbed by Purdue. You get drubbed by Auburn. You lose one to Kentucky, and you get blasted by Georgia. So the next two weeks, the Tigers have Florida at home and Tennessee at home. Two positively broken programs. Missouri has got to win one of those two games. At least be competitive in one of those two games. If Florida comes in there as bad as the Gators have been, having just gotten rid of their coach, and the Gators still find a way to win 30-10 to 10 or something, what does that say about Missouri? If Tennessee goes in there with that atrocious offense and mediocre at best defense and wins 27-13, to 13, what does that say about Missouri? I like Coach Odom. I think he's a good guy. I wonder if he's you know, suited for a job this big. And he's replacing a guy like Gary Pinkle, and they always say you don't want to be the guy who replaces the guy. You want to be the guy who replaces the guy who replaced the guy. So I don't know. I think you're probably right, and he deserves a third year, but it has not been good. This was a bad program last year. It's equally bad last year. It has the same exact warts, and until I see some improvement somewhere for this team, I have a hard time buying in on anything that Missouri's doing. Oh, by the way, look at the recruiting rankings. You're still hanging out in the 40s. You can't do that and win games in the SEC. I agree with that. I think that's a, a fair thing to say. I just, like I said, I think this. I don't think Missouri is the type of program that, uh, given given the fact that they they haven't had necessarily the the off the field stuff that they did um, before he was hired. I don't think they're at a point right now where they're that desperate to make a change at head coach. I think that they're going to still give him that third year. And if we're still saying this, these same things, if Missouri still has the same warts, so to speak, at this time next year, then absolutely I think they're going to be willing to make a change. I just think it's, it's still a little early for a place like Missouri to pull the trigger that quickly. Matt Luke, he's a guy we haven't talked about on this show a lot. Have you seen anything from Matt Luke to suggest 
that he should be the guy full time? Or is, you know, are the Rebels really got their hands tied behind their back right now? They can't do anything until the NCAA is done with them. Because who, who with the name is going to want to take that job if there's going to be more bowl bans and more scholarship limitations? Yeah, I, I wrote it earlier in the year that I thought this this job was this this hire was one of the more complicated hires that we've seen in recent memory for a Power Five program, just because you don't know what's going to come down from the NCAA, and you're going to have a situation in which you've got some some big time talent already at that program, and the idea of going to a place. If you're an offensive guy and you you think that you can coach Shea Patterson in his final year before the NFL, that's a really attractive option. But if the idea of okay, all these guys are going to transfer as soon as the NCAA sanctions come down, that that job obviously is not anywhere near as attractive as you probably thought in your in your mind. So I, I don't know who who they're going to go after necessarily, just because I think they're 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 not going to get a big time guy because. This is a, a job that's going to be really, really difficult from a recruiting standpoint for the next couple of years. And I think you have a, a, a coach in-state already who is doing some really impressive things and is going to make that job a little bit more difficult than probably it's been in years past. I think as long as Dan Mullen stays uh, at Mississippi State, I think that that Ole Miss job is, is not easy by any means. I think that uh, this is a program that's going to have to go through a big-time facelift. And I, I think Matt Luke does not ultimately come back with this job. But at the same time, I really don't know what they're going to be able to get on the open market just because we don't know how severe these punishments are. And that's, that's, that's what's going to dictate um, their, their reach, so to speak. Yeah, you can't talk about Ole Miss without bringing up Mississippi State. You know, in the Magnolia State to some degree, recruiting is almost a zero-sum game. I mean, if you're a good player there, you're going to one or the other. It's pretty rare where a super hot commodity gets out of there. If you're a pretty solid three-star kid in the state of Mississippi, you're going to one of those schools. And as far as Ole Miss has fallen, that just means the seesaw goes the other direction and Mississippi State clearly has things going right now. But just look at the recruiting rankings. I know we're still a long way from National Signing Day. But A, remember, we have the early signing period around Christmas this year. So that changes things significantly. And B, Ole Miss can't get any momentum right now. If you're a solid four- or five-star kid, why would you go there? You don't know who your coach is going to be. You don't know if you can play in the postseason. You don't know how many of your buddies that can be recruited as well in case there's scholarship limitations. The class of 2016... According to 247 Sports, which is always what I reference when it comes to recruitings, Ole Miss is 78th right now. They are projected to have the number 78 class for 2018. Guess who's 77th? The Naval Academy. Guess who's 79th? Tulane. That's what we're talking about with Ole Miss right now. Until the NCAA finally goes away and delivers sanctions, I don't think they'll be that terrible, by the way. Because this is the NCAA, basically a toothless organization at this point. But just them swirling above has terrified everybody. A big-name coach is not going to want to go there. A big-time recruit is not going to go there. So I think you almost are forced to hold on to Matt Luke as long as humanly possible. He's a good guy. Maybe he can win you seven games next year. But you know what? You're not going to get the guy you want until all this NCAA stuff is finally over. It's probably true. And I think Matt Luke... Matt Luke would have had a really good argument um, 
for why he should stay had Shea Patterson been able to stay healthy this year if they won like six games and he set the SEC passing record. I think that's a really nice notch on his resume to have, but uh, we saw this past weekend this is not the same Ole Miss team, and it's going to be a it's going to be tough sledding the rest of the way, and this this could get you know pretty ugly in the next couple months for this program. All right, enough hot seat talk, enough coaching talk. Let's try to get around to some actual football. The headliner game for Week Ten in the SEC, of course, is Alabama and LSU. Coming off a bye, the Crimson Tide are undefeated and look as just incredible as ever. LSU, everyone's already forgotten about that disaster at home on homecoming. Detroit, because they've had a couple of nice victories since then, so we're feeling like the Bayou Bengals have a chance. They haven't won this game since the 2011 regular season. They've been winless since, and a lot of those games have been ugly, including 12 months ago. Do you give LSU a puncher's chance here, or do you think, you know what, Roll Tide Roll, why would you change your mind based on what you've seen from the Tuscaloosa boys? I don't think Alabama dominates this one. I, I just think that all that you know, all the the talk coming into this is, it's you know, an LSU team is that's playing really, really well, in, and has been able to do some things offensively that they haven't been able to do in years past. And I think that's the key in this game. I think that you know everybody knows that LSU has just been that team that's decided we're, we're still going to stick to our game plan. We're going to try and run it down your throat, and that just doesn't work against Alabama, and that's why ultimately they lost six games in a row to the Tide. But I give them, I guess, a puncher's chance to at least keep this within a couple touchdowns just because I think they're going to be able to do some different things on offense with Matt Canada, and I think they're going to try and open up the playbook a little bit more for Danny Etling just because they've seen this movie before. They know that – if they just decide we're going to hand the ball off to Darius guys 25, 30 times and we're just going to assume that our offensive line can win that battle at the line of scrimmage, they're not going to win this game. So why, why try and do the same thing over and over again and expect different results? That's insanity. So to me, Danny Etling, Matt Canada, what they're able to kind of draw up for this game and execute is such a, a big factor. And I, you know, I give them a chance to at least – uh, be a lot more relevant than other teams have been against Alabama in this defense. You know, there are some things to like about LSU in this game. Coming off a bye, so Darius Geis should be the healthiest he's been all season long. Oh, by the way, he just came off, what was it, 277 or something against Ole Miss? Just an obnoxious number. So an asterisk. Against Ole Miss. I mean, I had a buck 55 against Ole Miss. Yep. But still, he should be close to 100%. I think Danny Etling has played well the last couple of weeks. You know what? He's marginally talented. There's no way he's going to go out there and throw for 350, but he plays within the constraints of the offense. He has some things you don't like about him, but he's the best they have right now, and he's playing okay. The receiving core is starting to get a little better with Russell Gage stepping up, up uh, alongside DJ Chark. And you know what? This defense is really starting to improve. Devin White is the most sure tackler in the SEC. A young secondary has a ton of playmakers. They are gaining confidence and getting better. True freshman like Grant Delpit. I mean, how good has that kid been already? They got cover guys in the secondary. The pass rush has gotten better. Christian LeCouture is putting forth a great senior season coming off an injury. Arden Key is starting to look like Arden Key again. I can talk myself in to LSU having that proverbial puncher's chance. But there's just way too much history for me. And Nick Saban has an extra seven days to prepare. 
And he's just so light years ahead of Ed Orgeron from a game planning perspective that, no, I, I don't think that LSU can keep it close. Do I think that Alabama is going to score 50 again? Probably not, because these games tend to be a little more low scoring. We know the Tigers are going to lay it all out on the line in this game, but I don't know how the Bayou Bengals are going to score points. This feels like about 30 to 10 to me. It's a nice thing that Nick Saban had a bye week, too, coming into this one. I think he he made the comment, too, um, about how LSU losing to Troy was the worst thing that could have happened for the SEC. Probably. It turned around LSU. I mean, it really did. I mean, look at the way that they responded since then when everybody was calling for Ed Odron's job. And, you know, this team has really come out and played a much better brand of football the last few weeks. And we're seeing what we thought we would see from LSU in the beginning of the year. Their offense is a little bit more imaginative. They do have some serious playmakers on the defensive side of the ball. And they're going to be able to do some things that Alabama really hasn't seen quite yet. And that's what I'm interested to see is how is Alabama going to handle the, the talent that LSU has on both sides of the ball, really, because they do have you know the playmakers on the outside on offense, too. Um, and I, I do think I, I give them a chance to, to at least surprise a few people. Now, I'm not saying that this is going to be a, a down-to-the-wire game and Alabama's going to need to sweat out a win. It's still Nick Saban coming off a of bye at home. But, you know, what's to say that this game can't stay within, you know, 14 points? LSU has looked really, really good. And just ask Auburn, this team is dangerous, and they're, they're not necessarily a team that anybody wants to face right now. Yeah, the last three games, you win in Gainesville. You come back from 20 to nothing down early against Auburn. You win that game. You go into Oxford, and you put it on pretty good, the Rebels. You win by a couple of scores there. I agree with you. I think this Ole Miss, I'm sorry, this LSU team – is improved, has a better attitude. It's a shame it took losing to Troy on homecoming for it to happen. But you're right. That was the slap upside the face that this program needed. But Ed, or- Ed Ordron is the kind of guy where, I don't know, I just, I just think those things have a shelf life, and you can only go to that well so many times. He's never had a reputation for being a schemer or a game planner or just one of these brilliant minds uh, when it comes to putting together systems, offensively, defensively, special teams. He's a rah-rah guy. He's a defensive line coach. He's one of those sofa sweethearts on the recruiting trail. You know, he's one of those guys that will, you know, tell stories with you know worms in his mouth, like we heard uh, once upon a time with the podcast that we did around him. He's he's a maniac, down in the trenches, get your hands dirty type of guy. Go go go, fire and brimstone. And just how many times can you go to that well? I just don't know if he can keep doing it against Alabama because you need to play a perfect game to beat them. And this is just what the Crimson Tide has become. Unless they make a handful of mistakes, unless they cough up the ball a couple of times, unless they screw up a couple of you know, coverages in the secondary and give up some big plays, I just don't see how you can line up and beat them snap to snap. The, the Tide have to give you a couple of freebies, and this team just has not done that this year. The idea of Ed Ordron beating Nick Saban, to me, you're right. I mean, from a game planning standpoint, you're sitting there and you're just kind of scratching your head like, how in the world is that going to happen? But this is why LSU paid those coordinators big-time money. Dave Aranda, Matt Canada are going to have to earn their paychecks this weekend. They're going to have to come up with the game plans of, of, their, of their coaching tenures to be able to beat Alabama on the road like this. I think it's actually going to be a pretty good matchup. I'm not convinced that the Alabama offense is going to be able to just run away with this one. 
Um, they might control the game. They might control the tempo still, just as they've done in these previous six meetings against LSU. But uh, I think that this stays relatively close, and I think for once we actually have a big headliner SEC game this year that sort of, well, I mean, I, I don't even know if you can call this a big headliner SEC game because everybody is so fixated on Alabama-Auburn, georgia Auburn and the SEC Championship, but I think this ends up being maybe the one of the games of the year that we've seen, at least among contenders in the SEC so far. I think that the only way LSU has a chance is that that defense has to be incredible. It has to be special. It just has to make plays left and right. I think you have to load the box with defenders, snap after snap after snap. you got to find a way to take away Damian Harris. You have to find a way to slow down Bo Scarborough. And even rushing the passer, you can't try to go nuts uh, getting after Jalen Hurts because his escapability is rare in this country. It's just incredible what he can do, and he can move the sticks seemingly with very little effort. you got to mush-rush that guy. LSU has to try to find a way to lock down man-to-man coverage and force Jalen Hurts to beat them with throws down the field. So much of his passing game is predetermined at the line of scrimmage with bubbles and slip screens and things like that. And then once or twice a quarter, he'll roll over off a waggle or a bootleg, and he'll try to chuck it downfield when he gets a one-on-one with Calvin Ridley. But this is a Crimson Tide receiving core that doesn't have O.J. Howard anymore at tight end. It doesn't have Ardarius Stewart anymore opposite Ridley at receiver. This has been a very inconsistent receiving core outside of Ridley. So I think you have to trust this young secondary that you have that has a lot of dogs back there, a lot of four- and five-star kids who can play. you got to bracket Ridley every opportunity you get. you gotta, you got to go man-on-man, everybody else. Try to find a way to keep Jalen Hurts in the pocket and make you beat him with your arm. I think that is the only, only chance. Is that going to happen? 100-1. to one. I don't see it happening. You need to get a lead and to be able to protect that football and have Darius guys run it and be effective. And that's just not what happens against Alabama. We've seen it way too often. I think the the tables are just slanted too far in Tuscaloosa's direction. This seems like an impossible assignment for LSU, despite the fact that Orgeron's boys have played better. But this is a different breed of animal. You're not going to try to run Darius Geis against Alabama the way you just did against Ole Miss. We're recording this this podcast on Tuesday um, before the first college football playoff rankings come out. Also, by the way, it happens to be Nick Saban's birthday. Um, and the one thing that I keep that I, that I just kind of keep coming back to is if I'm LSU, I really, really hope Alabama isn't number two in those in those playoffs. <laughs> that would be bad. That would be a disaster because Nick Saban can talk about rat poison all he wants, but an angry Alabama team, a team that feels like it needs something to prove. Uh, that, that's a recipe for disaster, and I don't think that's one that LSU can survive. So that's that's one thing to to keep in mind as we uh, as we move as we move towards this this matchup on Saturday. Nobody's going to make that connection. Nick Saban's not going to bring that up. Nobody would dare bring that up to Nick Saban. But um, I think it's something to something definitely to to consider uh, if if Alabama somehow gets that number two spot and Georgia ends up at number one in the first playoff poll. I know you and I are originally Chicago guys by nature, and we're very familiar with the story of Michael Jordan when he was with the Bulls, the kind of guy who would manufacture conflict, just a way to get himself up and get himself prepared. And you know what? He's facing the Nuggets on a Wednesday night, but he would invent some way that some, you know, six stringer off, I mean, uh, six man off the bench 
going to slight at him, and that would give him extra fire to go out there and drop 38. And Alabama is sort of similar, where they can get a little bored because they're so good and because they can just line up and beat anybody with their second and third stringers anytime they want. But if they find a way to feel the slightest bit disrespected, like this college football playoff poll might do, you're right, that's bad news for LSU. Because let's remember the college football playoff is essentially meaningless until the final one comes out and we know who's going to the playoff. The first one, you know what? They're just trying to drum up some interest. They're just trying to get people talking about college football and what we might see when New Year's Day and beyond gets here. So what's to stop the committee from making Alabama number three and just coming out there on live television saying, you know what? Yeah, they look good, but their resume is weak. They haven't beaten anybody good. We like Georgia better. We like Team A better. We like Team B better. Why not? And if that happens, bad news for LSU. All of a sudden, Saban and company have something to prove. I'll tell you one thing. If Alabama comes out at number three in the playoff poll, the Paul Feinbaum show is going to be electric. Yes. Electric. That would be be a a sight to see. I don't think Alabama is going to have to worry about that, though. And I think LSU uh, just – you can't necessarily get caught up in in the type of Alabama that you're going to see – I mean, you you got to assume that you're going to see an Alabama team coming off a of bye week, uh, two weeks of Nick Saban to prepare. It, it, I think it's going to be a good game, but, you know, I don't see Alabama slowing down anytime soon. Alabama's going to be healthier. Alabama's going to be more rested, going to be more prepared, going to be at home. Plenty of motivation. Yeah, just seems like way too much of an uphill climb for LSU. Again, I'm going to say about three touchdowns. Roll tide rolled. That's just what we've seen this year. Gerald Wilkins, who said that he could like shut down Michael Jordan or that he was brought to the Cavs. To the Jordan down. stopper. Yeah. The they Jordan called stopper. him the Jordan stopper. That didn't work out too well, did it? No, nobody's going to, like, nobody on LSU is going to come out and, and say that to Alabama. I mean, we could throw up we want Bama signs all we want, but that, I mean, that's the fans. Let's, let's take a, a page out of Vanderbilt's playbook and just never do that ever, ever again. It yeah. never works out. Let's, let's rest in peace. Any idea of calling out Alabama or giving them any sort of ammo just seems like the dumbest possible thing you could do. Even Iowa State is waving, we want Bama signs. (laughs) Slow down, Ames. Let's slow down. Slow your roll. All right, Connor, good show, boss. Hey, we got to bring up MJ. That's a great show. Chicagoans will be happy. That was Connor O'Gara. Remember to follow him on Twitter at CJ O'Gara. You can also follow me at SaturdayJC. And thank you for listening to the Saturday Down South podcast. Special thanks to our friends at WDAE in Tampa, as well as our sponsors, Crystal and Ticket City. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or wherever your favorite podcast can be found. Be sure to give the show a rating as well. My name is John Christ, and for all SEC all the time, visit SaturdayDownSouth.com.